0: listening to the SLP book club. We're your hosts Laura Geiser and Adrian Frost.
1: This month we're reading The Whole-Brain Child by Daniel J Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson.
0: Let's get into it.
1: Hi Laura. Hi Adrian. Welcome back everyone to the SLP book club. Today, we are going to discuss Chapter 6 of The Whole Brain Child by Daniel J. Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. So the title of Chapter 6 is The Me-We Connection, Integrating Self and Other. I felt like, once again, lots of content in this chapter, Laura. I don't know what you thought.
0: Oh, absolutely. I just read this chapter last night, so it would be... Mega fresh, and I have pages and pages of notes. I'm so excited.
1: <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, then, let's get into it. The book opens up, chapter six opens up, Ron and Sandy, a story about them and their child, Colin, who is seven years old, and the story was a little bit about how the parents are struggling with his, quote, totally and incurably selfish behavior. So it was just saying that he was lacking relational skills like empathy, kindness, and consideration. There was a little story about how he redecorated the room that he shared with his brother. And he just basically pushed all of his brother's stuff to the side. So his paintings and his trophies and just no consideration at all. Everything was crumpled in a corner And he felt totally fine with his decision. So (laughs) that story will leave for a little bit. We'll move on and then we'll circle back as this book tends to do. So this chapter is about teaching children to be a participating member of a, quote, we without losing their sense of me. So basically just developing fulfilling relationships while maintaining a healthy sense of self. I think we all can benefit from we're about to go over. Absolutely. They talk about mindset again, which we have talked about before. So it's not really a new concept, but they sort of develop the concept a little bit more, talking about how it has two parts. So seeing your own mind or personal awareness, and seeing and connecting with the minds of others. So empathy is needed to see or connect with the minds of others and to recognize the feelings perspectives, and desires of another person. So when we think about that story of Colin, he really needs to develop empathy skills. And in addition to developing and integrating his whole brain and the different parts of himself, he really needed to be given lots of practice at seeing things from other people's perspectives. So seeing other people's minds, he needed to develop the second aspect of mindsight. And then I like how in the book they say insight plus empathy equals mindset. So cute. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this book, it has some very catchy phrases. Yeah,
0: they're really sticking with me.
1: Yeah, me too. I mean, they rhyme and it's really helpful. So first, we need to look at how the brain participates in the creation of relationships. So again, most of this chapter is really about relationships and how we can support children as being great partners in relationships. So the social brain is wired for we. And what they were saying about this is that the brain is hardwired to take in signals from the social environment, which in turn influences a person's inner world. So in other words, what happens between brains, two people's brains, has a great deal to do with what happens within each individual brain. Not like a completely new concept, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, still really good to remember. Even more studies of happiness and wisdom reveal that a key factor in well-being is devoting one's attention and passions to the benefit of others instead of just focusing on the individual, separate concerns of a private self.
0: So when I was reading this, you know, I started thinking that even as young as preschool, I want to start teaching the students that I work with about how our brains are wired to connect with others. And I kind of loved the imagery they gave of your brain growing and changing after each interaction that you have with somebody. And I was just thinking of our brains connecting, like as if when you're having a conversation, your your brains are kind of plugged in together, like almost like, a, like you're charging your phone. It's plugged in and that it grows and grows and gets stronger from each little interaction that you have. And I know it's not always growing in a positive way. You might have some bad reactions, but that idea of teaching kids how important their interactions with other people can be is really beautiful. I was also thinking, I listened to a podcast a long time ago. I can't remember. I think it was something about happiness. And they were talking about how even introverts get so much joy from random interactions with strangers. And it's true for me. I'm a huge introvert, but if I have a fun little exchange with somebody like at the grocery store, if I help someone reach something off of a high shelf or something funny happens and you have a, you share a little laugh with a stranger, those kind of carry you through your day. You think back on it and it just brings you joy throughout the day. And you know, I'm really shy. I don't like a ton of interaction, but I do I always appreciate those and feel the joy from them. And I think teaching kids about the benefits of connecting with other people is really, really beautiful.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree about that. And we're going to get into those mirror neurons In a minute, which talks more about that, but I definitely feel like emphasizing to children from a really early age that we are meant to have friends, we are meant to be with other people, especially as we're pulling out of the pandemic, you know, like, wow, what a lesson that was for all of us to be home to be isolated. And I don't know about you, but I really acutely felt that like itch that I just needed to be with other people in that time. So yeah, yeah, definitely emphasizing that. Okay, so let's get into the mirror neurons, the reflectors in the mind. So I really liked what they said about this study. I'd not heard about this before. And I don't know, Laura, were you familiar with the concept of mirror neurons before reading this chapter?
0: Not in this way. Are you talking about the monkeys and the peanuts?
1: Yeah, I'm going to talk about that. But I just sort of mean like, (laughs) (laughs) I'd heard the term mirror neurons before. But I think I'd never taken the time to really explore exactly what they were or how they were discovered. So this was really educational for me. Yeah. Okay. So the study that they were talking about was that scientists in the 90s were studying the brain of a monkey and discovered that the same set of neurons fired when the monkey ate a peanut and when the monkey watched someone else eat a peanut. So regardless of whether the monkey was eating it himself or somebody else was, the same neurons were firing. And these are now called mirror neurons and they respond only to acts of intention where there's some level of predictability so if somebody walks over and is waving their arms in front of your face the mirror neurons are not going to go off because that's sort of like a random behavior but if somebody reaches out their hand to grab a glass of water you are going to be able to predict that they're going to lift the glass of water to their mouth and drink and then that causes reactions in us or the observer feeling thirsty when you see someone else take a drink or like yawning when somebody yawns so don't blame yourself really blame your mirror neurons when you yawn in a meeting and someone else is yawning. (laughs) but what you were saying and what I liked that they were talking about in the book was that mirror neurons really help bind us all together I was sort of thinking of it as maybe adding a little bit of that like social glue to situations and They're also really important for empathy because they help us resonate with other people's feelings. If you've noticed that when you're nervous or stressed out, maybe your kids will be that way too, or your students. Scientists call this emotional contagion, which I don't know. I guess after (laughs) all this pandemic talk, it felt like kind of a serious phrase. (laughs) Um, But it really just means... The internal states of others, which could be anything from like joy, playfulness, sadness, and fear directly affect our own state of mind and we soak other people into our inner world.
0: Yeah, you know, I remember talking about this in maybe our introduction episode when I was telling you about how when the year that I was very stressed, my kids, my students were also just more challenging for me. And I think that my emotional state was impacting them. And I thought about it again. When I read this, and I was thinking about with teachers, we all have been in those classrooms where the teacher is always stressed and yelling, and their kids are having more challenging behaviors. And then you go into that calm, cool, collected teacher's room who just has everything running perfectly smoothly. And it's such a pleasure to be in there observing her students. It's not like you could do like a chicken and the egg thing. It's like, well, her kids are more challenging. That's why she's more stressed. But you could see sure, it year after yeah. year. Every year, this teacher struggles a little bit more. And I don't know how to become that cool, calm, collected teacher <laughs> all the time. It, it feels like it's something that you have to be born with. I know.
1: Where's the magic key? <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> like you just have to have that personality yeah. because You see that in all of life, just those people that have that really calming energy that it's just so nice to be around them because you feel it so strongly and it calms you down.
1: Yeah, everyone out there who's listening, who's thinking about being a teacher, if that's your demeanor, then we need more of you. (laughs) Please. Well, you're a little bit ahead of me today, Laura, which I like. You're like giving a taster about what I'm about to talk about, so... Probably because it's so fresh in your brain. So the brain is reshaped by experiences, which we have talked about before. And it's also reshaped by our relationships and everything that they entail. So conversations, discussions, jokes, hugs. Our brains are really wired to be part of a we. So I like thinking about this because as an SLP, right, we have so many interactions with kids day to day. And this is not even kids that are on your caseload. You know the vibe when you walk into a room to pull a student and all the kids are like, hi, hi, who are you? Who are you taking? Can I come with you? (laughs) Yeah, It's like that is even an opportunity to just be positive and, you know, you can interact with them a little bit, introduce yourself. And maybe they walk away feeling like, wow, the speech therapist is a pretty cool person. And if they ever end up going to speech, maybe they'll start out with a positive mindset about that. Yeah. Laying the groundwork for connection, creating positive mental models. Attachment to caregivers and other important people in the child's life really sets the groundwork for their future relationships. When kids spend time with the most important people in their life, they develop important relational skills like communicating and listening well. Interpreting facial expressions, understanding nonverbal communication, sharing, and sacrificing. But also in relationships, children develop models about how they themselves fit into the world around them and how relationships work. So they learn whether they can trust others to see and respond to their needs and whether they feel connected and protected enough to step out and take risks. So really, in short, they learn whether relationships will leave them feeling alone and unseen anxious and confused, or felt understood and securely cared for. And again, this is probably not like, wow, mind-blowing new information. (laughs) But to view it in this framework makes sense because we, again, are the models for these children. And so we want to be bringing lots of positive, calm, good energy to the situation so students feel safe with us and secure, especially when we think about, so often we're asking kids to do things that are really challenging for them. So if we can create an environment or bring our personalities to the table that are, comforting um, encouraging I think that that will help students try a little bit harder you know when I was thinking about that I don't know I just sometimes you see on a kid's face like that this is really hard and they're getting discouraged and I love the idea that we can kind of bring the best parts of ourselves to the situation to help them feel more comfortable yeah connections with reliable others are used to soothe our internal distress So if a child isn't given nurturing from their parent, the brain tries to sort of like go it alone and tries to self-soothe as best as it can. And the brain can shut down in an attempt to survive, which prevents mindset from being developed. But those close to the child also create mental models for children. So this is our opportunity, again, as SLPs and educators to demonstrate compassion, understanding, kindness, perseverance, and mutual respect.
0: When I read this I was thinking about sometimes you hear people you know maybe someone who has really succeeded in life talking about a, having a tough childhood and you'll hear them say and then I met my third grade teacher miss you know they have that person in their life oh yeah and this could be someone who the relationships that they had as a young child were teaching them were really teaching them things like people will always let you down, you can't count on anybody, you know, you can only count on yourself. And then they they meet one person who shows them you can count on me, you're safe with me, I believe in you. And I don't know how much these stories could be exaggerated. But it really is nice to know that just one person. You're only one person. You can't be everything to everybody. But the relationship that you form with the kids that you work with could be really meaningful and have a really big impact on the way that they see the world.
1: Absolutely. So it was saying our brain really uses repeated experiences to predict what to expect. So when you're having multiple interactions with people who are negative, Or, you know, if your caregivers are not doing their best, that can be really reaffirming. But if you have a great teacher, you're seeing them every day, you can depend on them. That sort of helps the child to be able to predict if they have experiences that are full of nurturing, warmth, connection and protection, then that'll become the model for their future relationships. So with friends or other members of, you know, the community and eventually with their romantic partners and their own children. So definitely I agree with what you're saying. This is mostly just about being intentional about what we want to model for these children and what we hope to see from children as they grow into adults in the world. So there's a lot of hope there, you know, I think exactly what you're saying. One person can make such a big difference in a child's life and you could be that person. So preparing for we, offering experiences that lead to connection. We also need to prepare kids to join with others so that they'll be capable of being part of a we. Children need to learn mindset skills like sharing, forgiving, sacrifice, and listening. It's so easy to think that those things are just sort of innate, but oftentimes kids need to either be taught directly those skills or really have them modeled a lot for them to be able to learn them. And I was really caught up, you know, the word sacrifice came up a lot in this chapter. And I was thinking about it a lot. So much of relationships really do involve sacrifice, sacrificing something of yourself for the other person, friendships, even group work in class, like maybe Your idea needs to be sacrificed for the good of the group because somebody has a better idea. And being able to see that and recognize that in the moment goes so far socially.
0: Yeah. So it was interesting in this book how they were talking about really young children being so focused on themselves. You know, their first words are me and mine and I and no, like they just want everything. And in a family, usually the baby does kind of get what they need. Everyone gives them what they want when they're crying. But it has been interesting to watch. My sister has two-year-old twins, and I've noticed that... Because there are two of them, it's like they came into the world already part of a we. Even as young as one, when one would be upset, you would see the other trying to comfort them. It's like they already had so much compassion for the other one. Not always, they're still siblings. Like they would a lot of times cause the other one to be upset. But then you'll see one offering the toy that they took away, kind of saying, Sorry, oh, here. You can have it back or come like rubbing them, kissing the other one that's crying. So I would just be really interested to know if there are any studies of twins and empathy, because to be able to learn that skill right when you come into the world, to have this other person that you share this bond with and you care about their feelings so much is uh, something that most of us don't get to experience.
1: Well, let me tell you, if there's one thing I love reading about, it's twin studies. Yes. (laughs) It's just endlessly fascinating to me. Um, So if you find anything, Laura, give us an update, (laughs) because that's so interesting to think about, like being born into this world already part of, I guess, sometimes the best friendship, sometimes not. But this is someone you've known since, you know, before you were even born. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. The next part in the book that they were talking about is research shows us that shyness is actually genetic. So it's not your fault, Laura, that you're shy. It's something you were born with. And how a parent handles their shyness can have a big impact on how shy the child is later in life and their own feelings towards their shyness. And this was really new for me. I was like, wow, I'd never even thought about that. Do you feel like your parents handled your shyness well?
0: Yeah, I mean, I had a rough go of preschool. I was the kid who at recess, I preferred to be inside with the teachers. Like I, w- they would just let me sit at a table. I was so terrified of the other kids, but I was part of a big family and mm. I knew kids in my neighborhood. And once I got to elementary school, I think I had some friends and my parents were gentle with me. I'm not sure. I, th- I only got one year of preschool and I feel like my mom made the decision to put me in a little later because she knew I was, so- I mean, I'm not, I would have to double check that. But yeah, I think my parents didn't push, they pushed just the right amount and exposed me to so many social interactions. It eased me into life. I'm still shy. But I mean, you met me in grad school. It doesn't take me that long. I'm shy initially. And then once I warm up to people, I'm not probably considered shy by others.
1: Well, it was surprising to me when you were talking about being shy, because I really don't think of you that way. But looking back, it's like, yeah, we did meet when I was doing my bachelor's and you were doing your post-bac and we weren't really even like friendly at that time.
0: No, we just we just recognized each other's faces. Yeah.
1: And then only when we both got into the same. I know. Yeah. What happened? It was our first meeting with our whole cohort in grad school and we looked at each other and you were like, I know you. And you came and stood by me. And
0: yeah, it was one face I recognized in 20 faces and I was like I'm gonna force her to be my best friend
1: (laughs) that's the beginning of a great friendship people
0: (laughs) that's so funny
1: all right well the big takeaway here from this portion of the book, is that parenting matters. And honestly, this is such a theme throughout the whole book, right? And not only parenting, because we also need to think about this as SLPs. So everything that we do with the kids, I mean, it's a lot of pressure. And we'll talk about that probably when we talk about the conclusion. But, you know, I just think that in any situation in your work day, you have the choice of how you want to handle it. And maybe just trying to lean more into the positive overall could be really beneficial to everybody. Mm -hmm. But really, parenting has a huge impact on how children experience relationships during their lifetime. So set a good example if you can. Moving on to cultivating a yes state of mind, helping kids be receptive to relationships. If we really want to prepare kids to participate as healthy individuals in a relationship, we need to create within them an open receptive state instead of a closed reactive one. So the author uses an exercise example where you can sit by yourself or have somebody sit with you and say no seven times with a couple of seconds separating each one. And when you say no, use kind of a firm inflection. Stop afterwards, note how you're feeling and then try again with yes seven times somewhat more gently and you'll see that the no's feel like more stifling, angering, kind of like you're being scolded when the yeses feel more calm and peaceful and even light. I tried this myself. I just said it out loud and I definitely felt the difference and actually this has been really great for me because when I'm having interactions with my daughter and she asks me for something. I've sort of been mentally noting how often I say no, and it's just like, what a bummer. (laughs) There are probably some situations where I could just choose to say yes. It's not that consequential, and it would go a long way for our relationship, so... I've been trying to recognize that within myself too.
0: Yeah, I like their approach to no in this book. You know, there was a movement for a while where a lot of parents weren't really saying no to their children. They were, you know, giving alternatives. And they just say in here that if you want your no's to be more powerful, instead of saying no, you know, offer an alternative, something else you can do, but keep your no's to where when you say them, your child knows you mean it. And I appreciate that. Not just like, don't say no. Right, right. If you're saying it so much, maybe there's something else you could do in place of some of them and then your nose have more meaning to the kids.
1: Definitely word choice is so powerful too. I just saw something that was talking about saying I'm sorry. And I know that as women, right, we've all heard this many times that we over-apologize and whatever. But this person was saying instead of saying I'm sorry, you could say thank you. Ugh. And it was such like a powerful shift in my mind. So maybe if you're five or 10 minutes late to meeting somebody for lunch or coffee or whatever, instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm late, you could just say thank you for waiting. And just look at how much that shifts the energy of that interaction.
0: That is life-changing. I
1: know. <laughs> if you can remember it, let me know how it goes for you. But okay. I've been really trying to just be more aware. When the nervous system is in a reactive state, It's fight, flight, or freeze. So this puts the entire focus on self-defense, which makes it harder to connect meaningfully with others. We're guarded in these moments. And again, this is more of a downstairs brain reaction or sort of more aligned with that no part of the exercise that I just went over, which I'm sorry to take a little side detour, but I actually explained the upstairs downstairs concept to my daughter yesterday. (gasps)
0: Oh my goodness. I know she was having
1: she was having a meltdown because I was trying to put her down for her nap and my husband wasn't here and she really wanted a kiss from him and she was really like daddy daddy crying a lot and I was like okay Georgie and I put my hand up and I talked to her about you know this is our downstairs brain and this is our upstairs brain. And when we get really upset, our upstairs brain goes like this. And I like flipped up my hand and she just was kind of looking at me, but I did it in a funny way. So she was laughing. So I was trying to like integrate all the things from the book, like be silly because it'll help them or whatever. Yeah. And I just sort of thought it like maybe went in one ear and out the other or whatever. But then when we were upstairs getting ready for her nap, she said something about it. Like, Oh, I'm still feeling really stuck in my downstairs brain. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I know. I thought, wow, it really works, people.
0: Amazing. I love that story.
1: Yeah. So moving on. The yes portion of the exercise is to demonstrate that when the nervous system is in a receptive state, you're more relaxed and your blood pressure and heart rate normalize. So you're more open to hearing and understanding what another person wants to express And this is engaging more with your upstairs brain. When interacting with kids, it can be really helpful to determine if they're in a reactive or a receptive state of mind in whatever moment you're trying to talk to them. So if the child's screaming and really having a meltdown, it probably isn't a good time to sit them down and lecture them about like the appropriate ways of handling our big feelings. Instead, maybe wait until the child's calmer. Because the downstairs brain really cannot handle a lot of these big upstairs brain words that we use when we're lecturing or kind of giving, you know, a monologue to a child. So in those moments, nonverbal responses are the most powerful. So you can do something like a hug or just mirroring their facial expressions and using really... Empathetic, supportive facial expression. But over time, we want to help our children become more receptive to relationships and help them to develop mindset skills that will help them join with others. Then receptivity can lead to resonance, a way of joining from the inside out that will allow them to enjoy the depth and intimacy that come with meaningful relationships. If you don't do that, a child is left adrift motivated by a sense of isolation rather than a desire and ability to join. So when I read this part, I was thinking about, I don't know if you've heard this, Laura, but I've had students say to me, I really don't even want friends when we're talking about like why social skills are important or why we need to be good listeners, whatever skill we're talking about. Yeah, I've heard that phrase. I don't want to have friends. And when I thought about this, I was like, wow, that's really coming from a place of like loneliness, defensiveness, reactive rather than, you know, an actual desire to not be connected to people.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that the kids I work with might be too young. But yeah, it, it does seem like it comes from kind of a place of rejection where you're protecting yourself rather than truly not wanting the connection.
1: Totally. The students I'm thinking of who have said this to me are more like fourth, fifth, sixth, maybe into middle school. Yeah, yeah I mean, everybody kind of wants friends. I can't really think Of a situation where you wouldn't want that. So when we hear, when I would hear that, it would be a real red flag to me like, oh, we need to talk about maybe the importance of relationships or get the child into more of a receptive state. But as always, we want to be aware of the balance between the me and the we for children. So we don't want them to be so focused on the we that they forget about their own individual needs. And the example in the book was a 10-year-old girl who is trying so hard to fit in with like a mean girl clique that she completely forgets about her own individuality becomes really absorbed in the group or the we. Just as we don't want our kids to be only right-brained or left-brained, we also don't want them to be only individualistic, leaving them selfish and isolated or only relational, leaving them needy, dependent, and vulnerable to unhealthy and harmful relationships. We want them to be whole-brained and to enjoy integrated relationships. So let's avoid that codependency in the future. (laughs) Now we're going to talk about strategies, what you can do, helping your child integrate self and other. So now we're on whole brain strategy number 11, increase the family fun factor, making a point to enjoy each other. So this is about playful parenting and how it gives your child positive experiences with the people they spend most of their time with their parents. The more children enjoy their time with you, the more they will look forward to and enjoy having relationships with other people. So this part said, having fun with their parents can create, quote, dopamine squirts, end quote, <laughs> in our brains. And wow, I just thought, do we have to use the word squirt? Like something about that. Like, couldn't it just
0: be surges, like bursts? <laughs> something else choose another hey you were just saying word choice is so important
1: (laughs) absolutely I just was laughing out loud reading that like thinking about how we were going to talk about it (laughs) anyway um dopamine is released one way or another in our brains when you're having fun and it can motivate you to want to do it again and again so when you think about addiction that is just something good is happening, like maybe even a food addiction. You know, you eat something, dopamine is released, and then you want to do it again. So if you can look at this through this lens of spending time with your child, it can strengthen your bond because that dopamine is being released, especially when you're silly or you're having fun. And it can also teach the child that relationships are affirming, rewarding, fulfilling. They give a lot of good examples for parents in the book of things you can do, but it can also be really fun for SLPs and teachers. I was trying to look at it through that lens of maybe you do some speech therapy that's focused on jokes. So I don't know. I think you've we've talked about using jokes in our practice before, Laura, but Yeah. Jokes are so great. They can target so many different goals. Like I was just brainstorming about this. You can do explaining why a joke is funny. That could hit language goals, pragmatic goals. Reading the jokes out loud can target fluency, articulation. You can even make up your own jokes, which are all of the above. It just can send a message that speech is fun, which could really result in the student having more positive outlooks about themselves and about speech, especially. If they're sort of like long haulers and they're going to be in speech for a long time. You can also do maybe some narrative work. This was an example they gave for parents, which is, or families, everybody can take a turn saying a line in a story and you can kind of build like a silly story, but that applies so easily to speech. You can have different students make up different parts of the stories. You can have one student, maybe if they have like a narrative retell goal or some sort of auditory comprehension goal where they're listening to the story and they kind of give you a synopsis at the end. I think it could be really fun. Even Mad Libs, you could target grammar. It's just there's a lot of ways to weave in fun and silliness into speech. And then the book discusses sibling relationships. So they were saying siblings who have better relationships as adults tend to have more fun together when they're young. If you're a parent and you're looking to integrate more fun and silliness into your family time, this should have a positive impact on siblings later on down the road. And again, you can always use silliness to shift a child's mood, which is a really great tool to have in your SLP tool belt or even your parent tool belt is if they seem to be really down or in a really grumpy mood, you can try to do something silly and that might kind of snap them out of it.
0: Yeah, I really liked the part on siblings and I liked their math equation. At first I was like, oh, don't give us a math equation. But it was just that the amount of enjoyment your kids have together should be greater than the amount of conflict that they have. You know, just try to always yes. keep that balance. Keep your, the siblings having fun together a lot more than they are fighting. And I was thinking about toys and games that instead of causing conflicts where it's more of like a one player thing, things that encourage multiple kids, you know, what came to mind were those Melissa and Doug sets like the sandwich shop or the, you know, where one person could be the store employee and one person's the customer and they switch off. I've seen with my nieces and nephews that giving them presents like that the parents are like, they're not fighting. They're just playing collaboratively together. Also games like Peaceable Kingdom, where it's not always competition, but you're working together. You know, those collaborative games are great um, for siblings. Collaborative but then also, games. I don't yeah. know if you've used them in speech, but when I've had those super competitive kids that are just always in conflict with each other, I try to do things that are more collaborative like that.
1: Yeah, I I know the exact kind of student you're talking about. And yeah, Peaceable Kingdom has some really great collaborative games. And I have them in my own house because they're really fun for the family to play together. And you're right. It kind of shifts the energy from like, we need to be competitive. You need to be the winner to like, we can all work together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a
1: great comic in the book on just sort of highlighting how you can implement this strategy. So instead of command and demand, try playful parenting. And the example was, I want daddy to wash my hair. The little girl is saying in the bath, I really want my daddy. And the mom is like, Well, daddy's helping your sister. Stop yelling right now or you won't have any dessert or whatever. But instead, you could try playful parenting. So if the daughter is in the bath saying, I want daddy, the example is, the mom's like, Hi, were you calling me? I'm the dad. (laughs) You know? I will say I tried this on my daughter today, and I don't know how successful it was, but maybe I need to work on my impressions a little bit. (laughs) That might help.
0: (laughs) Maybe you need a puppet of your husband. Oh, you know, actually. (laughs) That can stand in. (laughs) (laughs) For Christmas, he did order for
1: her a daddy pillow, which I don't know where he got it from, (laughs) but it's probably like 15 inches tall. And it, it has his face on it. Yes, it's his. So it's a like cartoon body, face on it. And when it came out of the package, I was like, "Wow, what is this?" Because the cartoon body is holding a cigar in one hand and like a glass of whiskey in the other hand. And I was like, "Wow, what a unique choice." <laughs> for the daddy pillow and then he shows me the one he actually ordered on the website which was just you know like a plaid button-down shirt and jeans nothing in the hands and instead we got this cigar smoking uh whiskey drinking dad (laughs) yeah I mean that's a great segue but anyway
0: oh that's perfect
1: I guess that's how it goes you order stuff online never know what you're gonna get moving on to whole brain strategy number 12 connection through conflict teaching kids to argue with a we in mind. So you can't help a child avoid all conflict. Again, something we've been talking about and sort of comes with the territory of being in relationships. There's always going to be some level of conflict and you just cannot avoid it. But there are some ways that you can use conflict as a thrive instead of survive moment. So one thing you can do is see through the other person's eyes, help kids recognize other points of view. So if a child comes to you with a conflict, like. Maybe they're saying, you know, Timmy called me stupid. First, try to connect and then redirect. So you can demonstrate an awareness of the child's feelings, which should decrease their feelings of defensiveness and prepare them to see how the other child feels. And then once you can see that you've connected with them and that, you know, they're not feeling so defensive, you can try to create some empathy in the child. So maybe try asking questions like, how do you think Timmy felt? Or you know, why did they do that? And when we're asking these kinds of questions, we're helping them to use that mindset and to get in the other person's head, which should help more with the conflict. And there's another comic that sort of demonstrates this with a mom. And what is their little catchy phrase for this? Oh. Instead of dismiss and deny, try connection through conflict. <laughs> so the daughter in the first part goes to the mom and she says, you know, mom, called mom, Mark called me stupid. And she says, well, what did you do to him? The little girl says nothing. We were just talking and he just said it. And the mom sort of dismisses like, I don't know. Just stay away from him. You guys are both in bad moods. But if you try connection through conflict and the same thing happens, mom, Mark called me stupid. Why do you think he said that? Well, maybe because I made fun of his picture. But. I was just joking. And you can even see in the comic, in the first part, the mom is staring at her computer. She's not really connecting with the daughter. But in the second part, when she asks, Why do you think he did that? She's giving her daughter her full attention. She's looking in her eyes and showing a more empathetic facial expression. And then they kind of work through the conflict. So, what was the picture? Was that the picture he's been working so hard on? And the daughter says, Yeah. And the mom asks, Do you think maybe that's why he could be so mad? You know, the mom is connecting and then trying to help the daughter to see the other sibling's point of view and then problem solve.
0: I've realized reading this book, how powerful the question or the starter, why do you think is? Asking kids. In a lot of situations, why do you think that woman was so rude to us? Just getting kids thinking about the reasons behind things and asking them why, even if when they're really young, their responses are totally off the wall. It's just fun to get them imagining, like thinking about other people, thinking about the reasons behind uh, other people's actions is such a powerful thing.
1: Absolutely. So listen to what's not being said, teaching kids about nonverbal communication and attuning to others. This is just about taking the opportunity to teach the child to look at and interpret nonverbal cues. They'll be assisted by their mirror mirror neurons <laughs> in this situation. So an example might be... This is what they gave in the book. Like, let's say a child's friend is on the losing team during a soccer game, but the chi- your child won. Your child might say, oh, you know, he said he's fine. He's not sad. But maybe you could take the time to sit with your child and say, oh, but did you notice how his shoulders were kind of slumped or how he wasn't smiling when he said that or how he didn't want to come out for burgers with us afterwards? Those are his nonverbal cues and signals that, you know, he actually wasn't happy, even though those words were coming out of his mouth. We can also focus on repair, teaching kids to make things right after a conflict. So saying I'm sorry is important, but sometimes, you know, that's only the first step and you need to do a little bit more. And this is about teaching them to do other follow-ups, like maybe a specific direct response, helping to fix a toy that was broken or replace it, Or it could be more relational, like drawing a picture for them or writing a letter to apologize. So, this is great. I mean, so often parents like, just say you're sorry, it'll be fine. But sometimes, you know, depending on what happened, you might need to give a little bit more. This is just about supporting your child there.
0: I could totally see this being used in a classroom, like a teacher saying, what one step are you going to go beyond? I'm sorry. You know, maybe I'm going to go give them a hug. Maybe I'm going to fix the thing. Maybe I'll write a little letter about things I like about them. Just having kids not just say these words, I'm sorry, that they might not even mean, but to really show that they're sorry and go beyond is, I thought it was really cute. And it could be used a lot of ways.
1: Me too. An example that they had in the book was maybe an act of kindness, which is so easy, right? So even if it's not directly related to the infraction or whatever happened, maybe they could just help, you know, whoever they hurt later on, they could help them with a project or they could do something on the playground or there's so many opportunities for just doing a little bit more like you're saying going the extra step
0: mm-hmm. but
1: this is about also teaching them to be aware of those situations and again it connects directly to the two whole brain strategies that we just talked about about empathy and attuning to others feelings so to sincerely want to make things right a child must understand how the other person is feeling and why that person is upset and then the parent or teacher or SLP, can more successfully bring up the question, if it were you and your favorite thing were broken, what would help you feel better? Each new movement towards considering somebody else's feelings creates stronger connections in the relational circuitry of the brain. And then when we break through the child's defensiveness and their reluctance to accept responsibility, it can really help them be thoughtful about others that they've hurt and to make an effort towards reconnection. So again, just about teaching kids to go the extra mile take specific steps to make things better. And then there was an example circling back to the very beginning of the chapter talking about Colin, who made the choice to redecorate the room and kind of like pushed all the brother's things to the side. He could be shown by his parents to look at his brother and really see his nonverbal cues. Again, looking at how his posture is, looking how sad He looked while he was picking up his things that Colin just kind of threw aside. And this is the opportunity for a powerful teaching moment that might not have occurred if the parents had just said, you know, go say you're sorry and move on. So one way to kind of go further is, again, to look at the nonverbal cues. But the parents also could have a discussion with him to figure out what could be done to make things right. So maybe apologize and work with his brother to make some new paintings, right? That's going the extra step and turning a situation from survive to thrive. These reflective skills are also the basis for how children learn to balance their own emotions while understanding the emotional lives of the people around them. And Mindsight, again, is the basis of both social and emotional intelligence. So it's huge. And a lot of what we do as SLPs is we're trying to improve their social intelligence, right? So this is a really great way to do that informally. And it also helps children to learn that they are part of a larger world of relationships where feelings matter and connections are a source of reward, meaning, and fun. There is a really great comic that shows ways for you to explain mindsight to a child. It's kind of good to just look at it and see for yourself. But they kind of talk about mindsight being seeing with your mind. There's some great visuals of a child and how he's kind of like looking up into his brain and seeing pictures and about trying to see other people's minds with your eyes. And a great example of sort of working through a situational problem using that sort of model. So the last part, again, is integrating ourselves. So this is talking about how we as adults can look at this and use it for ourselves. And I just wanted to do a little disclaimer that this did seem to be more focused on parenting and less about our work as SLPs. But a lot of us SLPs are parents, so take from this what you will. This part is talking about the importance of our own life narrative or the story that we tell when we look at who we are and how we've become the person that we are. So when we have a coherent life narrative, we've really worked to make sense of how the past has contributed to who we are and what we do and sort of why we do it. But as a parent, you know, you might have parts of your life narrative that are implicit memories that haven't really been integrated into yourself. And that could be preventing you from being the best parent you can be. It can relate to you handing down pain from your relationship with your own parents which is something we all want to avoid. So you can work with a therapist or maybe even a friend, but I would think that would have to be a pretty good friend (laughs) (laughs) to do the work of a therapist, essentially, to start recognizing patterns and behaviors that are preventing you from parenting effectively. And again, we can look at this and just take away the big lesson that this is really all about creating secure attachments so the child can thrive. So again, just being in the best place mentally that we can all be in order to be a really great example for kids in general.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think more and more now just as a society, we're recognizing how strong the impact is of the things that we say to children. Children can take something that you didn't even think was a big deal and their little brains can kind of turn it into something bigger or turn it into a real belief that they have about the world and you know the things that we say and the way we interact with kids has a massive impact. So even if you're not a parent, if you are a speech therapist or a teacher, you know, just being really intentional with the way you interact with kids. It's all you can do, but it's
1: worth (laughs) a shot. I think great. Well, this is it for chapter six of the whole brain child. Thank you so much for being with us and listening to us today. And Stick around for the next episode where we'll be covering the conclusion. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode.
0: Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club to download these great materials.
1: To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the SLPbookclub.com.
0: You can contact us by emailing hello at the SLPbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore bookclub. Find us on TikTok at the SLP Book Club.